This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. If there's a choke point in Everglades restoration, it's here in the sprawling marshes built to clean all the pollution from water that's supposed to head into the Everglades. It doesn't look like, just with a casual glance at the area, that there's much here. But then you'd be quiet for a minute, and how many different things do you hear? There's a lot more going on than you can see. Eric Crawford is a senior scientist at the South Florida Water Management District. He's in charge of managing these thousands of acres where water flows mostly off sugar fields and into the stormwater treatment areas. We're sitting on an airboat in the early morning light in what seems like an immense water garden. There's water lilies, swamp hibiscus, and thick stands of cattails that explode like fuzzy fireworks when the airboat flies over them. Workers and waders plant neat rows of bulrush nearby and water the color of black coffee. A few yards from them, airboats keep watch for gators and snakes. Yeah, you didn't think you'd enjoy sitting in the middle of an industrial wastewater treatment facility, <laughs> but that's where we are. <laughs> You're listening to Bright Lit Place, a WLRN podcast about the Everglades and the struggle to undo damage from the 20th century to help us survive the 21st. I'm Jenny Stiletovich. This podcast is distributed by the NPR Network and supported by the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. You can also check out our website at brightlitplace.org to see photography by Patrick Farrell. Today, there are about 57,000 acres of these man-made marshes south of the sugarcane fields below Lake Okeechobee. They were constructed by Florida as part of a landmark court settlement to end years of litigation over pollution. That's the same lawsuit you heard about in Episode 2. The marshes clean phosphorus and water draining from the sugarcane fields. But that water is so polluted, it gobbles up nearly all the cleaning capacity in the marshes. That leaves little room to clean lake water. And so far, they've cost Florida taxpayers more than $2.5 billion dollars where we're sitting in the airboat was the very first stormwater treatment area, or STA. It was built in 1994 on the eastern edge of the Loxahatchee Wildlife Refuge. The hope was that the land itself, if managed correctly, could clean up all the pollution flowing from the fields and polluting the refuge. Since then, it's more than doubled in size. We are a farm, but we don't have a crop. What we have is a we're the reverse of normal farm. Instead of adding fertilizer and nutrients to grow plants, our crop is clean water and so we grow our our plants to take the, the nutrients out. But now time is running out. In just two years, the state will have to meet a court ordered deadline for cleaning water. Whether it works remains to be seen. While the STAs have removed millions of tons of phosphorus, the Everglades, that last fifth of untouched wilderness, requires almost no phosphorus. And this year, the National Academies of Sciences warned that Florida is dangerously close to not meeting the deadline. 
Those are the scientists ordered by Congress to grade restoration progress. In this episode, we look at this other side of restoration, getting the water clean. While the comprehensive restoration plan addressed the plumbing and split the cost 50-50 between Florida and the feds, the state was left to clean the water on its own. Without clean water, restoration will fail. I remember even then not knowing enough about it, thinking, so we're going to initiate the world's largest effort to restore wetlands while at the same time we're filling in and destroying the wetlands that remain. And like, how does that all balance out in the bigger picture? Something may pass, but in the back rooms, they will always get what they want in the end. Remember, restoring the Everglades was supposed to be this great triumph of compromise. We all marched forward together when we all agreed on the plan. But when progress stalled, that pact started to fall apart. When we ended our last episode, the comprehensive plan that would replumb the Everglades had just passed. But then nothing. Crickets. That was probably predictable. On the actual day the plan was signed into law, the only thing that anybody seemed to be paying attention to in Florida were its hanging chads. Here's Florida Governor Jeb Bush trying to celebrate at a press conference outside the White House after Bill Clinton signed the plan. To uh, implement the Army Corps' plans, which is a very solid one. Governor Bush, if the, uh, if the U.S. Supreme Court were to remand back the Florida Supreme Court, you're going the wrong way on that one. A standard for which to count these votes. Would Republicans in Florida support that? We're here to talk about uh, something that is going to be long-lasting, way past uh, counting votes. This is the restoration of a treasure for our country. At least I'm here for that. No. Sir, have you ordered local election officials for training Tampa? Let me step back here. (laughs) (laughs) Any other Everglades questions? The next day, the U.S. Supreme Court called off Florida's recount and handed the presidency to Bush's brother. Meanwhile, in Washington, lawmakers were having doubts. The Army Corps already had a massive backlog of projects. George Voinovich was a Republican senator from Ohio who had a reputation for being a tightwad. Currently, the Corps has a backlog of over 500 active authorized projects with a federal cost of about $38 billion. I want to emphasize the words active projects. These are projects that have been recently funded economically justified and supported by a non-federal sponsor. Like President George Bush, he worried about Congress adding even more to the Corps' to-do list and making promises it couldn't keep. It would take 25 years, 25 years to complete the active projects in the backlog without even considering additional project authorizations. Under the Everglades plan, if the price of a project rose too much after it was authorized, it had to come back to Congress to be reauthorized again. So that ended up being a real stumbling block. Land prices in Florida were skyrocketing amid a major real estate boom. Between 2000 and 2005, housing prices rose more than 82%. By 2005, the price tag for SERP had risen by $3 billion. 
So what happened in that window of time from 2000 to two, you know, beyond when all costs rose exponentially, pretty much none of the projects were able to be done under the current costs that were approved and authorized in that bill. And so they had to go back to Congress. Julie Hill Gabriel arrived in Florida in 2003 as a 1L at the University of Miami Law School. At the time, it was looking like restoration might wind up in line behind all the other core projects collecting dust. You have what is pegged as the world's largest ecosystem restoration effort that had really just begun, you know, really a couple years in at this time. And at the same time, the land that is currently still available in the Everglades is being targeted to be drained. And I remember even then not knowing enough about it, thinking, it's so interesting. So we're going to initiate the world's largest effort to restore wetlands while at the same time we're filling in and destroying the wetlands that remain. When the plan came out, it included more than 60 massive projects to correct the natural plumbing destroyed by flood control. State and federal planners expected batches of the projects to be authorized by Congress every two years. The Corps thought all those authorizations would be done by 2014. Instead, after the plan passed, the Bush administration wouldn't unlock the money for Everglades restoration projects for another seven years. We had some projects that were initially designed to use certain footprints of land And then local governments were approving that land to be developed for new communities or businesses. And so we kept having to change some of the project designs based on what was actually available. It's important to point out what was lost in that time between 2000 and 2007. The original approval for the Comprehensive Restoration Plan also authorized 10 projects to get things started. One was a shallow reservoir near the sugarcane fields and the future stormwater treatment marshes we visited. It was critically needed to hold water over the rainy season to be able to provide water in the dry winter season. Another was a reservoir north of the St. Lucie River, which was getting hammered by dirty water released when the lake water got too high. By 2005, both were supposed to be under construction, but neither had started nor had any of the others, which were all expected to be well underway within the next 10 years. That was supposed to keep things on track to eventually create more than 180,000 acres just in storage. So far, we have just a small fraction of that. One reservoir that's done, plus some old citrus and ag land used to hold water. That comprehensive plan also called for 30,000 acres in stormwater treatment marshes, in addition to what the state was already building. Instead, Congress was in gridlock. Members, please take their conversations off the floor. The House will be in order. Here's Texas Representative Eddie Bernice Johnson in 2007 trying to convince the House to override a veto to fund restoration by President Bush. Since 2000, all components of the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan have been delayed. Costs have increased, and even in my paper this weekend, there was an article on how the Everglades were disappearing. So sticking to the schedule was becoming a real issue. Also, Remember that this was the plan that some scientists were not crazy about. If you look at those really nice satellite images that we have, 
Stuart Pym is a Duke University evolutionary biologist and regarded as one of the leading experts on animals going extinct. You can see how the water is supposed to flow. And you can see how the water is supposed to flow because of the tree islands. The tree islands line up with, with the water flow. Pym started working in the Everglades in the late 1980s and was one of the scientists looking at how restoration needed to work to save the marshes and the wildlife. And the problem is that the Everglades is the bottom end of the watershed. I don't know any other national park in our country that's at the bottom end of the watershed. Normally, we protect the tops of watersheds. But in Florida, the Everglades National Park and Florida Bay uh, and the Keys are the bottom end of a water supply. Being at the bottom of the watershed means pollution flows into the park from all the cities and farms upstream. It makes it harder to clean up, but not impossible. Next up, Pim and other scientists see a flaw in the plan. You can't fix the Everglades if you're gonna provide flood control to the middle of it. The sun rises in the east. And if you've got a group of people who think it should rise in the west, the answer is the sun rises in the east. More on that after this break. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit TeladocHealth.com slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Welcome back to Bright Lit Place from WLRN News and the NPR Network. I'm Jenny Stiletovich. Another crucial source of delay for the health of the Everglades was the sequence of projects and the comprehensive plan as it was taking shape. This was one of the main things scientists like Pym were worried about. And you go, wait a minute, the one thing that directly affects the Everglades isn't going to kick in for 36 years. Under the original proposal, Everglades restoration wouldn't actually restore that last fifth of the Everglades, the only remaining wilderness not converted to farms, neighborhoods, or flood control, until everything else was already done. And everybody wants to save the Everglades, but they also want to have unlimited growth in Florida, you know, and they want to have this and that and something else. And, and that's not going to give you a, a natural ecosystem. At the time, 
two scientists at Everglades National Park wrote a scathing report. Tom Van Lint was the architect of that report and said in no uncertain terms that getting water to the park had to come sooner. So when this arrived on my, on my desk, as it were, on my laptop, they said, what are you going to do about it? And the what I'm going to do about it appeared on, I think, the front page of the New York Times, where in some fairly choice Anglo-Saxon language, I pointed out that it wasn't going to do anything for the Everglades. And I found myself in very short order on the sixth floor of the Department of Interior being held to account by a group of Army Corps officers who tried to assure me that I really didn't know anything about Everglades restoration. That led to better assurances that the park would get its water, plus the creation of regular independent progress reports by scientists. There need to be people who make sure that we're spending our taxpayers' money in a, in a sensible way. But from a planner's point of view, the only way to get support for the plan was to mix projects that help the wild Everglades with infrastructure for the millions of people living next door. Here's Rock Salt, the country's first Everglades czar, in charge of the task force coming up with the comprehensive plan. In order to have a successful plan, we needed to tie it to something more than restoration. And they tied it to urban water supply. So that truth allowed everyone to, to meet both the Everglades' needs, but also the municipal needs, the water supply, flood protection, all those sorts of things in southeast Florida. He says that remains to this day. To deal with their water or water, not so much water quality, that's, we talk, that's different, but the water problems, flooding or water supply, their best hope for that relies in completing the SERP. SERP is the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan. But many scientists, and certainly a lot of conservationists, see it differently. And over the years, we've seen these trade-offs repeatedly either slow down or dramatically scale back work. Pim says restoration's always been too politically driven and crippled by compromise. I'm all for, you know, stakeholder engagement. I do understand that we have to, we have to satisfy different interests. But, you know, the sun rises in the east. And if you've got a group of people who think it should rise in the west, the answer is the sun rises in the east. One of the most steadfast defenders of the science would be Tom Van Lint. As planning for SERP was nearing the end, remember, he was working at Everglades National Park headquarters, writing computer models to show where and when water was needed. And he was repeatedly warning that the park was getting shorted when it came to water. The Park Service, since they were paying for the project, took those concerns as legitimate. And I was always very grateful to be listened to. Van Lint, who's retired now, had just finished his Ph.D. in civil engineering at Stanford when he went to work at the park. He's from South Dakota originally and had already worked at the Water Management District for four years before finishing his degrees. My father and grandfather were very good carpenters, and they said, it's not the tools that make a good carpenter. And it's the same with models. You, you have to kind of know how to use them. They're a wonderful tool for informing decisions, but they're not decision-making devices, or they're not the be-all and end-all. Van Lent was emphatic that a lot more water needed to be moved into the park than the Corps was planning for. 
but the Corps was wary of flooding the Tamiami Trail, the old highway that connected Florida's east and west coasts in Miami. It also cut off the bottom of the Everglades from its water supply. You can't fix the Everglades if you've got to provide flood control to the middle of it. But at the time, modeling hydrology focused on water levels and flooding. If you move this here, that happens there. The metrics they were using were great for flood control, for water supply, but they hadn't done ecological restoration projects. And so they kept accusing us of changing our minds or changing the story all the time. You know, which graph is it? Uh, it's like, well, it's not so much a graph, it's a story. And the story Van Lant wanted to tell was what happens to wildlife when you move water around. That, after all, was the goal of restoring the Everglades. I found that if they don't raise water levels in Tamiami Trail, you don't do anything. You don't change alligator nesting. You don't change hydroperiods. So no fish, no, no real ecological benefit. But that wasn't what a lot of planners were interested in hearing because they had compromises to uphold. So that was, that was one original sin. Just the idea that the environment did not come first. Here's Michael Grunewald again. He's the author of The Swamp. Nobody could lose their flood control. Nobody could lose any level of flood control. Nobody could lose any level of water supply. Um, and in fact, there was going to be a lot of additional water supply to support South Florida's growing population. And then essentially, you know, if there's some left over for the bugs and muddies, great. Wetlands like the Everglades have been getting more attention lately. That's largely driven by the urgency brought on by climate change and headlines around the world about dwindling fresh water supplies and flooding. But the restoration work here in Florida, which could have given the state a huge head start, remains stuck in these compromises. That's been a big problem all along because the economic interests, the sugar industry, the development industry, the water managers, they are all on top of it, making sure that their interests are being served. But the environment doesn't have the same kind of lobbyists and doesn't have the same kind of legal power in this plan. And remember, nothing in the comprehensive plan dealt with cleaning up the water. Left to the state, that was getting hammered out in court. That brings us to another original sin involving big sugar. Al Gore, when he came down to Florida to announce this great Everglades restoration plan, he promised that there was going to be 100,000 acres of sugar fields would be converted into restoration reservoirs. Because remember, this is a storage project. You need storage. So he announced the plan that morning. That afternoon, President Clinton was in the Oval Office. He was actually breaking up with his girlfriend. Monica Lewinsky. And he got a call. You can read the Star Report after uh, President Clinton's impeachment. But it said that, uh, that he interrupted this interlude to take a 22-minute phone call. And the White House switchboard record showed that it was, in fact, Alfonso Fanjul, who is essentially the largest sugar baron in Florida. There was no way Big Sugar would surrender its land that easily. And over the years, as restoration played out, we've seen that land for storage and land to clean water are the two things that keep getting shorted the most. Big Sugar always operates under the assumption that something may pass, but in the back rooms, they will always get what they want in the end. 
Kirk Fordham was chief of staff for Republican Congressman Mark Foley from West Palm Beach at the time. His district included sugar growers. Fordham later became executive director of the Everglades Foundation and now chairs the Everglades Trust, the foundation's lobbying arm. Big Sugar is very good at hiring lobbyists at every level of government. They hire partisan lobbyists to cover every possible base, the Progressive Caucus, the, the Freedom Caucus, the, the Black Caucus, the, the Blue Dogs. They always have a lobbyist that's been retained to make sure that people vote with sugar. And there's a different argument for each of those folks. For decades, the federal government has protected sugar farmers by setting quotas on imports and domestic production. Those limits allow U.S. sugar growers to charge twice as much as international growers, according to the American Enterprise Institute. American consumers overpay by up to $4 billion a year. Here's former New Hampshire Senator Judd Gregg criticizing the program back in 2001. There are some extraordinarily wealthy families and businesses in this country who are essentially putting their hands not in the cookie jar, but in the pockets of the American citizenry and taking money out of that pocket. WLRN requested interviews from the Fan Hools and U.S. Sugar, the other major grower. They asked for written questions, which we provided. Neither agreed to interviews or replied to our emailed questions. I'm sympathetic with the fact that a private landowner wants to continue farming their land. However, at the same time, we're having to spend, you know, untold millions of dollars cleaning up the pollution that uh, resulted from, from that subsidized farming operation. Big Sugar wasn't the only thing standing in the way of restoration. The real estate boom, powered by millions of people moving to the Sunshine State, contributed mightily. But sugar drew most of the scorn because the sugar fields are smack in the middle of the river of grass. Instead of that land going to help restoration with treatment marshes and reservoirs, the public subsidizes sugar growing and then foots much of the bill for cleaning it up. The breadth and power of their lobbying force is designed to overwhelm any opposition, whether that's a decision at a county commission level or in Congress. One of Sugar's savviest maneuvers played out in court back when Jeb Bush was governor, when it became clear that the state wouldn't meet a 2006 deadline to better clean water entering the Everglades, Bush and state lawmakers passed a new law moving the deadline back to 2016. The Miccosukee tribe and the nonprofit Friends of the Everglades sued. The federal judge who'd been overseeing the case for 16 years was furious. Judge William Hoovler berated the state in a court order and noted the number of sugar lobbyists working to get it passed. Hoovler was well regarded. And I can honestly say that uh, I don't think I ever went in the courtroom, whether it was a peanut case or a big case, that I didn't feel the thrill of, of walking in the courtroom, of being a part of a system of justice that uh, is, uh, in my mind, the best system in the world. He'd overseen the prosecution of Manuel Noriega and was called the Abraham Lincoln of federal judges in his Miami Herald obituary. But his statements helped U.S. Sugar get him removed from the case. The next governor to try and take on Big Sugar to advance restoration was Charlie Crist. In 2008, he announced a huge deal that would have redefined restoration. U.S. Sugar had agreed to sell its land to the state, 
that would have given Florida about 180,000 acres of farmland to use for treatment and water storage. Today we're here to announce a strategy to save America's Everglades. This represents, if we're successful, and I believe we will be, the largest conservation purchase in the history of the state of Florida. Some say this is the long-awaited holy grail for Everglades restoration, while others say it's a bailout of a company with strong political ties. Amid that criticism that the state was paying too much, the deal fell apart. Fordham says the Fan Hools, the other big sugar growers in the Everglades, also waged a campaign to derail it. They made the case that this was going to just be a big ripoff for taxpayers. And uh, so it was a combination of both the economic downturn and uh, a very effective campaign, especially in Tallahassee, to undermine the plan with Republican lawmakers. So the deal never happened. It could have given the state the land it needed to clean and store water, to reset the Everglades clock, and make it function like it did a century ago. Instead, here we are, 15 years later, left with slivers of land to try to make restoration work. You don't get two different teams. You get one, <laughs> you get one piece of land to do both. Next up, the taxpayer ripoff. I'm Jenny Stiletovich. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives. Empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares Betterment's philosophy on investing. No matter the amount of money you have, it's always good to be invested. It's always good to start early. It's always good to save. And the power of being consistent in your habits is really the path to long-term wealth. Get started at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit bluehost.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to improving lives through invention, innovation, and climate action. Welcome back to Bright Lit Place, a podcast from WLRN News distributed by the NPR Network. I'm Jenny Stiletovich. So we're talking about the land deal that Governor Charlie Crist tried to strike with U.S. Sugar to buy 180,000 acres of farmland. The collapse of that deal left taxpayers on the hook for billions that the state has spent cleaning up pollution from cane fields that remained in production. Sugar growers are taxed $25 an acre to help pay for the cleanup and restoration, but that doesn't begin to cover the cost. And starting in a couple of years, that amount begins to drop. By 2036, it amounts to just $10 an acre. So when we talk about restoration, we need to remember the ingredients that make it work. 
It's not just about the plumbing and making sure water supply and flood control are taken care of. A huge part is cleaning nutrient pollution from phosphorus and nitrogen in the water that we use to grow our food and that runs out of our neighborhoods. Without that, we won't have the water we need to save the Everglades. We're getting closer to the front end of the system here, and you can see there's a lot of nutrients. We have all this algae growing in the muck. We're back out on the stormwater treatment marshes with Eric Crawford with the South Florida Water Management District. He says at the front end of the marshes, where water is pumped off the farm fields, the pollution is the worst. And this is why we're trying to increase the bulrush coverage on this side to hold hold these sediments down and so that we don't we're not transporting this settled nutrients back into the water column. Even though it's only thigh deep, you can't see the bottom in the mucky, polluted water. It's also where a lot of invasive species enter the marshes through the runoff. Check out Patrick Farrell's photography at brightlitplace.org to see what I'm talking about. About a dozen Guatemalan and Haitian workers and waiters, both women and men, are planting bulrush in neat rows. Tadisa Deabo is a senior scientist working with Crawford. Today, he's trying to figure out how to deal with the invasive plants clogging up the STAs and ask the crew chief about raising water so he can spray herbicides. Ishmael, if we bring the, uh, the stage up in here, if we bring the stage up in here, if you like, say for instance a half a foot, is that going to slow you guys down? I'll come to you. Ishmael Garena is the crew chief. He sits at the controls of an airboat, his bushy gray hair tucked under a sun hat. He started working in the STAs a decade ago after spotting an ad in the paper. He ferries the workers back and forth, and he and another airboat driver also keep watch for gators when the workers are in the water. We're watching the crew because of the alligators. The, the smaller the gator, they tend to come up to you. Because, and the bigger ones, you don't know where they're at because they stay underwater. So you, you get constantly got to watch out for them, because of the safety of the guys. You know, you have 15 people in the water. And there's always a boat near them while another one goes back to get plants to bring them in. And then there's the snakes. The workers use what look like garden trowels with three-foot-long handles to dig holes. But when they plant the bulrush, they have to reach blindly down into the dark water. It's more dangerous because you go between the plants. Lagatus in the top of the water, but a snake in the bottom sometimes. Juan Hernandez is 60 and says he's been working in the STA since 2012. He says the job is not for everyone. Yeah, some people quit. Just come in one day, try, and he don't like it because I have snake, lagator, you know. And it's hard to walk in here. In, yeah. in the few minutes we've been talking, the crew has planted eight rows of bulrush. Hernandez assures me that because they've been making such a commotion... Any gators or snakes have probably been scared away. The crew works fast using each other and the utility poles towering over the sugarcane fields as landmarks to keep the rows in straight lines. They started planning this area in January. By April, they had about 60 or 70 acres finished, but with a lot more to go. They're continually replanting the bulrush that either dies or gets blown down by a storm. Plantings can go slower during the summer. We've got a lot of rain, thunderstorms, and things like that. During the winter, you have more stable conditions, but you may not be able to access the area that you want to plant because the water levels may be too low. 
What's striking is once you get away from this super-polluted area with its farm-like rows of bulrush, the rest of the stormwater treatment areas can look like a wild garden. One area is filled with beautiful American lotuses the size of platters. Normally we'd prefer lotus closer to the inflow region because it grows really well in the nutrient-thick water and where that, like, muck is. But, you know, we'll take it where it's at. Um, Plus it's real pretty. It gives you something to nibble on while you're out here. The, the, The green seeds before they harden are actually kind of tasty. In another area, we stop just to listen to the birds. Crawford is a falconer, and he and Adeabo are both birders who can easily identify the different species. Which makes you forget that this is an industrial waste facility that taxpayers have spent more than $2 billion to construct and another $22 million a year to keep running, just to clean water from the cane fields. Each plant has its has its job at different parts of the flowway. So at the inflow region, those those plants are there to to slow the water down to try and create sheet flow. So we're taking channelized flow out of a structure that comes in and then breaking it up into kind of that, you know, that sheet flow, that river of grass that, that people talk about and try to make that happen. In some places, the cattails and bulrush act like barriers. In others, plants are submerged. Crawford sometimes calls these SAVs, an acronym for Submerged Aquatic Vegetation. The plants and the soil trap the phosphorus from the fertilizer flowing off the farm fields. But getting everything to work has taken decades of trial and error. You can figure out and calculate and do the models and say, okay, well, at this depth, with those plants at this flow rate, you can get your optimum treatment. But then make it happen in the real world is, is <laughs> it's a different story. And then... Hurricanes can hit or summer rain bomb. Then suddenly the treatment marsh needs to become a place to hold storm water. And that's a completely different operation. That, then the structures open up and the water moves. But then we have to be ready to switch back to the trickle, let's, let's go for water quality performance, and now it's switch modes. So you don't get two different teams. You, you, get one, <laughs> you get one piece of land to do both. Or there's those invasive species that can come in at the top end of the STA where the crew is planting the bulrush. The most efficient way to kill them is with pesticides. But then you risk killing good plants and worse, driving up phosphorus numbers because you now have a bunch of dead plants around. So we're right at the inflows right now. Where the power lines are, that's the inflow. So you see lots of invasive and nuisance vegetation right here. There's taro and hyacinth. And primrose willow. Yeah, not great. Yeah, we're in the we're in the STA's bumper. <laughs> yeah. This area takes the beating. The district also didn't get to pick the land that would make the best treatment marshes. It had to use what sugar growers would sell or what the state already owned. Most of that came from buying old cane fields owned by the St. Joe Company in 1997. And to succeed, the marshes have to get water really clean with almost no phosphorus left, like less than a dozen drops in a 10,000-gallon swimming pool. And even small things can throw off that count. 
That's why you don't see any trees here. If you get too many of them, you get a rookery. Having these birds in the SDAs is great. Having birds roost in the SDAs at night is, is not really ideal. You don't want them roosting because of the poop? Yeah, if they're feeding in the SDAs during the day and roosting somewhere else, that's nutrient export. They're, they're doing some work for us. But, but if they're pooping in the STAs, they're adding nutrients. Treatment marshes can also get old and worn out, and they're not at all uniform. An STA west of here is chronically dried out. We have older cells like this that either need rehabilitation or things have changed over the years to where we've created this, this buildup. This is nutrients that we captured. You know, a lot of this is, is job well done 10 years ago. But we need to keep it here. We don't want it moving to the outflow. So we... To get a feel for it, Crawford likes to spend a lot of time in the water. He used to just park his truck and wade in. Going for the walk is where you feel it. You can feel cold water underneath the warm water when you're in like an area where there's a short circuit forming. There's a lot of stuff you can't see that you can feel. We don't plant every single plant out here. We plant very little of it, actually. So we try to help it where it's weak and try to guide it along. And, you know, if we can manipulate the water levels a little bit to keep the diversity up, you know, places where we need muck stabilization, we'll bring in plants. And so it is, it's, it's like a garden and, you know, it's, it's the swamp. And the STAs still aren't getting water clean enough to meet the legal phosphorus limits. The court deadline to begin meeting that limit is in two years. Work is underway to improve them, but to really work, Crawford says he needs a chain of connected treatment marshes that would give him more flexibility to move water. If Florida misses the lawsuit deadline, the matter will wind up back in court. Another reservoir is in the works. It'll help both on the plumbing side and include new treatment marshes to clean water. But it's mired in the same kinds of compromises and trade-offs that have derailed restoration all along. I mean, that's like the dirty side of politics, I guess, right? I mean, that, that sometimes you take what you can get, and, and then in return, the politician's going to expect you to say great things about it. Well, no politician is pure on this topic. In the next episode of Bright Lit Place, we hear about the political maneuvering around that reservoir and the scientist who sacrificed his career trying to get it done right. I still have difficulty wrapping my head around just um, how bizarre this is. That's next time. Bright Lit Place is a WLRN news podcast distributed by the NPR Network. It was reported by me, Jenny Stiletovich, and edited by Rowan Moore Garrity. Merritt Jacob is our sound engineer and composed our original music. Check out our website, brightlitplace.org, to see photography from Patrick Farrell and web design from Laura Kurtzberg and Kai Wilson. WLRN's Director of Enterprise Journalism, Jessica Bakeman, helped with editing and production. KQED's Dana Cronin helped find archival tape. Special thanks to Vice President for News Sergio Bustos and the whole team at WLRN News. 
This podcast is part of the Pulitzer Center's nationwide Connected Coastlines Reporting Initiative. For more information, go to pulitzercenter.org slash connectedcoastlines. If you enjoyed Bright Lit Place and want to support more local journalism like it, please consider donating to WLRN. Hit the donate button at WLRN.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture Card. Earn unlimited 2x miles on every purchase. Plus, earn unlimited 5x miles on hotels and rental cars booked through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts.